Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. I'm Grayson. This is Ethan. We wore black and white to make it a little bit easier for you guys. But if you get it confused, there's no hard feelings. I respond to Ethan as well. I've been doing it my whole life. So very good. Nice don't to meet worry. you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We are extremely fascinated by Aptera. Um, we were telling Steve that we found. I'm sorry, Chris. Rather, you got them confused. Yeah, oh. I'm getting you guys confused. Sorry. Uh, we were telling Chris that uh, we. We found you guys, I guess we got served uh, your, your video, the, the nine-minute video that you did kind of like, this is Eptera, on YouTube, and after that nine minutes, we were just like extremely fascinated, and I actually pre-ordered one of your vehicles. Nice. Uh, nice. We're humbled. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing with, uh, with Eptera, and I, wa- I just want to get into that. Um, yeah. We, first of all, I mean, we see it behind you right now. Um, it looks like an absolute spaceship. So impressive. I got to imagine when you guys are driving that thing on the street, uh, people are stopping you left and right to ask you what you're driving. It gets attention. People are, uh, people are amazed. Uh, the interesting thing is, you know, the wheels are covered. So when it's driving down the road and you're on blacktop, you really don't see the tire. So, you know, from a visual perspective, you go, holy crap, the thing's floating. Uh, the future is here. Um, you know, the spaceships are upon us and uh, that's what you get. But really it's, uh, you know, the uber aerodynamics of this vehicle kind of require us to close in those wheels and make them as aerodynamic as possible. The side wow. effect is it looks like it's floating. And yeah, I guess it, that answers my second question, which is, does it fly? But I guess it just is the illusion. Um, uh, but, if you uh, get it going fast enough, it will fly. <laughs> Almost anything can fly, I guess. Yeah, no, and the aesthetic, is, the aesthetic is so nice. It um, obviously is, is built for the, the aerodynamics, but you've been able to make it look just so aesthetically pleasing and, and, and visually like artistic. What, has that been like a challenge? A, a challenge, like to make something with you know, this insane amount of aerodynamics look this good? We think of it as a styling, but the designers call it design. And so we have a very um, mathematical shape, but that mathematical shape doesn't uh, translate into a consumer product very easily. So it requires a designer, in this case, Jason Hill, who did the design or styling uh, the shape of lines, cut lines, curves, all that sort of thing, the, the colors, textures, it's, you know, that's what designers do. And they make, they make something, I mean, they can even make a box desirable just by the color, the shape, the textures, and everything else. And so that's, 
that's in large part Jason's work. It's interesting when you have when you're constrained by this aerodynamic profile what you can really do with it. But you know, I think it really does look stunning. You know, the the cut lines in the windows and the lighting and everything. It just it just all plays very well together. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Chris, we were talking earlier that um, we're both Tesla drivers at the moment. Um, and we talked a little bit about the aerodynamics of, you know, just, just other cars in general and four wheeled cars. Um, what is like the, I guess, like the ultimate difference between the cars that are on the road now and the Aptera as far as aerodynamics? Yeah, I mean, people don't realize that you spend a significant amount of your fuel at highway speeds just pushing air out of the way. In a typical sedan, you're spending 60% of your energy just pushing air. So if you can make your vehicle super aerodynamic and, you know, look more like this, you can get 60% better fuel economy just because you're more aerodynamic. So we kind of started there and said, uh, you know, let's take the aerodynamic drag down to zero. Okay, what else can we do to make the vehicle more efficient? And it's, it's light weighting, it's uh, efficient powertrain, and, you know, it's, uh, you know, great battery technology. And that's also how it can be a solar electric vehicle because you've heard maybe some people recently uh, talk about how it's not viable for a vehicle to have solar cells and that you, you shouldn't do it or it doesn't make any sense. And they would be right if they're talking about all other electric vehicles. The reason it really only works for Aptera is because you see the shape. It's so efficient. It uses such little energy to go per unit distance that a little bit of solar on the Aptera can go a long way. Whereas on some other modern electric vehicle, it might only push it another five or six or seven miles a day. So that's, that's why solar works on Aptera because it's so efficient. So the, the Aptera is covered in solar panels. 182 cells uh, to be exact, uh, almost three square meters. And uh, if you were to arrange them in a flat panel, it would produce about six, 700 watts, something like that. But they're not arranged in a flat panel. They're broken up and they're at different angles and sometimes they're shaded. And so when you spread all of them out on the vehicle, it produces a maximum of about, I think 400 watts or something like that. But over the period of a day, it'll give you up to, here in, let's say, Southern California, up to about four kilowatt hours just from charging from the sun. So that translates into about 40 miles for our car because we burn about 100 watt hours per mile. Wow. So, Which is probably like m more than most people's drive to and from work. Exactly. The, uh, so the average daily commute in America is about 31 miles. In Europe, it's about 25. So that was really kind of the breaking point for us. If we can give people more than 30 miles a day of solar charge range on average, then they would never have to plug in their vehicle again. It would just be a perpetual motion transportation device. So, so that was, was, were those the mathematics that you ran before you came up with like how, how, how many watts you were trying to get out of the solar panels? Or did it kind of just come about that it was like, wow, this is luckily more than the uh, average commute? Uh, it's a funny story. So when we were talking about solar, we had built, so we built it before we built, uh, during the beginning of the restart of the company, we actually built a solar model, uh, a facsimile of the vehicle, and put it on the roof of our R&D shop, which was located on his property. And we collected data for about a year, and, but really after the first couple of days, we could see this was working. But what happened is we started with a small panel, and then when we calculated how much energy we gained through the whole day, you know, we both looked at each other and said, wait a minute, why wouldn't we put them on the hood? Why wouldn't we put them in the back? Why wouldn't we put it on the, why wouldn't we cover every surface artfully and, and aesthetically pleasing way with solar cells? And we did. That was, that was the connection. It's like, 
the hood, I think, added a couple of miles per day, something yep. like that. And we said, wait a minute, we've got much more space available. We could get 20, you know, we did the calculation, so it was going to be close to 40 miles. Yeah, there's even solar on the dashboard of the Aptera. So oh, wow. see right right through the window, right down through the window, you get a lot of solar gain right in your dash. You know, you're driving around, you're like, the dash looks pretty hot up there. Wouldn't it be great if that was producing energy for me to drive with? Well, Aptera does that, so. And it's really, it's one of those obstacle is the way kind of things, because on our vehicle compared to a regular car, there's a lot of, the surfaces are more flat. There's more surface and they're, they're more flat. They're more orthogonal to the sun. Uh, and we have a very large exposed dash that you wouldn't find in a typical vehicle because the, the vehicle is so flat. So we use that surface area to help, uh, help us be even more efficient. Wow. So it's, I mean, literally a vehicle that you never have to fuel. For, your, for the average driver uh, in North America, you could never have to plug it in. We have a little solar calculator on our website, too, that shows you, you know, if you live in uh, the northern states and you get less sun, you know, maybe you'd have to plug it in once, twice a year. Uh, if you live in the southern states, um, you know, the smile states, uh, Texas, New Mexico, California, Florida, uh, you likely never have to plug it in. It's just a vehicle that you park outside and let the sun do all the work. Wow. That's, that's, that's crazy. For a lot of people, that's that's definitely the you know the tipping point where they start to lean more electric. Just because I was talking to Grayson about um, purchasing his next car because his lease is up with his Porsche, and um, I, I'm I, I drive an electric car, and Grayson was a little bit discouraged just because you know there's always that fear of it running out of battery, and then you have to pull over at a charging station and wait sometimes up to an hour because if we, someone's ahead of you in line. And ba then, basically, we we wanted a car that we could just go anywhere with. Mm. Um, and the Tesla is, it's great, but you do have to stop at charging stations along yeah. the way if you're going, you know, more than 300 miles and sometimes for longer than you'd want to. Um, so with, with charging the Aptera, I saw that, uh, and then also with my Tesla for the home charger, I had to get an electrician to come out and do some sort of, I don't I don't know what it is scientifically or the terms in, in wattage, but, um, you know, he had to do something and like, we had to upgrade my electric panel at the house. He did something. Yeah. yeah he did something. <laughs> And he rigged up this, this Tesla supercharger here, so now my car can charge overnight in eight hours, full, nice, full battery. Nice. Um, yeah, that, but that's another cool I, thing about the Aptera is yeah. you don't have to in, install any of that crazy charging stuff at your house. Uh, overnight, with just a regular 110 plug like you'd plug your iPhone into, we can get you know 200 miles uh, overnight of charge range. So um, you know you save 5,000 bucks on the home charger, and you still get plenty of range out of your home plug. You know, the maximum range for our vehicle is 1,000 miles. So just in the battery, you have 1,000 miles. Then you have the solar, you know, charging it every day. And if you need to plug in at the house, you know, you can get 200 miles overnight. So this is a regular plug. Yep. Like you plug in your cell phone. Wow. This is the moment where I actually feel like the future is here. <laughs> like I actually was just like, wow. So just with a, with a 110, that's like your standard wall outlet that you charge your iPhone with. You get 200 miles in a night. That's insane. And so, and what is like, what... What about like the charger up from that? If it's more than a 110, like yeah, you, you can get a, a like the charger you probably had installed at your house to charge a lot of range into your Tesla overnight. I mean, that could give us six uh, six hundred plus miles uh, overnight. Um, so you know, you could really charge for long range trips. Wow! So wow! My my Tesla only goes up to like it says three hundred miles, but realistically, it's probably like somewhere in the high one hundreds. Unless you're traveling uh, with downhill. the way you drive it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. we're just revving it in ludicrous, ludicrous mode. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, it has like a chill mode, but I've never really been in chill mode. Uh, <laughs> the opposite of but, chill mode. 
Yes. Yes, opposite of chill mode. Um, I was also so surprised when I got my Tesla um, about like the acceleration. It's almost like as I think about stepping on the accelerator, it's accelerating. It's instantaneous. Whereas all the other gas cars that I've driven before, you know, it takes a couple seconds for the engine to get oxygen and then take off. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You know, how quick is the app, Tara? Being an electric vehicle. Yeah, the Aptera is amazingly quick. We actually have in-wheel motors, so the motors are in the wheels. Uh, in your Tesla, there's a motor in the middle of the vehicle. It goes to a transaxle, which is a bunch of gears, and then spits it out to drive shafts to actually go to the wheels. Uh, there's universal joints on the wheels, too. Uh, every bearing, every gear that you have in a system like that is a loss. So we want the most efficient powertrain possible. So we actually took the motors and put them actually in the wheels. So it's driving power straight to the wheels. There's no gears, there's no drive shaft, there's no universal joints. It's just straight power straight to your wheels. Uh, what that does, it gives you a lot of torque too because our motors are a lot bigger. So we have amazing acceleration times, you know, zero to 60 in 3.5 seconds, Ooh. you know, for a vehicle that Piece you my can car. get for, you know, under $30,000. Um, there's yep. no combustion. There's no vehicle <laughs> you can buy for under $30,000 that has that kind of acceleration. So we think we're in a really unique class where we're not only the most oh, yeah. efficient vehicle in the world, but it's also not a slouch. You know, it, it'll hang with the Teslas. It'll hang with, you know, other vehicles out there. It's certainly faster than my Bolt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's faster. Than, I have a, I drive a Porsche Panamera and I believe it's like four seconds, zero yeah. to 60. Yeah. It's not the souped up one though, but so if you were uh, sitting at a stoplight and a uh, spaceship pulled up next to you, you would expect I'm not trying it to, to race be faster it. than I'm you. I'm not right? going to race know, it. That's, that's what you'd expect. But I think your point about driving is uh, is exact because people, the first time they drive an electric car, and then after they own one for a while, they you become addicted to this sort of instantaneous response. Like you know everything is working right. You know you get in a friend's car, your your you know spouse's car, and it's a gas vehicle. It just it feels like there's a rubber band connected from your foot you know to the uh, yeah yeah that is what it feels like and to me when i drive the tesla versus when i drive my car i feel safer with an instantaneous response on the accelerator because say i'm in a merge lane and and someone comes in they're not trying to let me in and i have to go in front of them or i have to surpass a vehicle for for one reason or another i can do that as i think about it with the gas carts like in my in in my car i I sometimes will press the gas to, to try to get in front of someone or or get myself out of something and and there's you know, a second or two of delay. And sometimes, I mean, at highway speeds, like a second is a lot, you know, it's a lot of distance. So like, I, I do feel safer in Ethan's electric car because of that. And I, I want to get into the safety of, of the Aptera because that was like one of the first questions I, that came up in my mind is I watched this video and, you know, before you got to the part where you explain the vehicle safety, I was so curious. I was like, Everything I've ever heard about a three-wheeled vehicle has been that, you know, they're dangerous. You hear about Can-Ams and stuff. They're very 
closely related to motorcycles and how does this compare to other three-wheeled vehicles as far as safety goes? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, vehicle dynamics, you know, equal safety. Um, you know, the more responsive uh, your ride is, uh, the better the braking, um, you know, the quicker the acceleration, um, you know, it, it, it can be a safer vehicle. But in a three-wheeled platform, it's really all about weight distribution. So keeping the weight over the front wheels, um, you know, or all-wheel drive uh, has torque vectoring, so you can have some pretty amazing stability control uh, with the vehicle. And we have this composite uh, monocoque structure where the whole vehicle, you know, is this egg around you. Uh, you know, the vehicle is your helmet uh, all around your body. Um, and it's built like a Formula One car or, um, uh, you know, Cirrus aircraft, much more than, you know, typical automotive um, because of our resin-infused composite structures. And it's amazingly safe. In previous uh, tests, we had amazing roof crush strength and side impact. Uh, we had the highest roof crush strength of any passenger car on the road, um, you know, all, all with this, you know, uh, package we have behind us. So, you know, we feel strongly that uh, passenger safety is of utmost importance. And we think that the way people are building steel and aluminum vehicles could be done a lot better if they would switch to composites like us. So we feel great about, you know, our, our path to production with a very safe and stable vehicle, one that's responsive and will keep you out of trouble. Yeah, the, the stability is really, it's the key. You know, uh, yes, there's, uh, there will be traction control and stability control and algorithms to make use of all three motors. But even without that, you know, the vehicle needs to be, and it is, uh, a stable platform. And we were just at the track last week uh, doing the moose test, which uh, went great. I don't know if you know what that is, but I think you No, what's that. a moose test? Uh, 40 something miles an hour and you have to make a sudden turn like you're dodging a moose i think it, i guess it was it was in <laughs> yep yeah, yeah maybe i think volvo probably uh originated this test you know some years ago but um it at the time it was a common cause of accidents because the vehicle would lose control in such a sudden high speed swerve so we did that test we uh, did some eighth mile racing, zero to sixty, and all very good results. We're gonna, we've got video of it soon, and it's gonna be published. But um, I'd say seeing the stability firsthand, especially this new vehicle, is is absolutely awe inspiring. Yeah, controlling a vehicle that's two thousand pounds is a lot different too. So you know, uh, your Tesla it weighs a lot. <laughs> so you know, uh, having the vehicle dynamics and something that weighs so much is a lot, uh, a lot more of a challenge. So we. Our, our lightweight uh, chassis, our composite structures, you know, we have airbags just like uh, typical uh, passenger uh, cars. So, you know, we think we've got a, a great mix for people uh, to, to make them feel safe and in control uh, when they're driving the Aptera. But because it's the use of composites, it does allow us to build more structure than we'd be able to with a steel car with less weight. So, and, and the fact that we only have three wheels instead of four, so there's less weight, there's lower drag, Lower drag means that there's less energy needed. Less energy means there's less batteries or fewer batteries needed. And so it's like a waterfall effect. You, you can stop at shorter distances. Your brakes don't have to be as big. You know, you're only moving around 1,700, 1,800 pounds versus 5,000 pounds in your, your electric <laughs> car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's all about the weight and efficiency that makes it safe, too. Yeah, I think safety was something that came into mind um, when, when I first saw the Atera, just because it does look, you know, I mean, to the eye, it looks a little bit smaller than, you know, the average car that you'd see on the road. Um, but as I continue to watch, the, you know, the video that you guys put out, um, I learned that, that that wasn't true either. 
every everything that I had, every doubt about you know this car that I had in my head was completely you debunked. Know, debunked. Yeah. Um, so yeah, can you talk about the space? Because I was so uh, just amazed how spacious the vehicle is as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You see pictures of the vehicle, and because it's so striking in its appearance, I think most people assume it's small. Uh, but it's not. It's as wide as a uh, Ford F-150 pickup truck, and it's as long as a Prius. So, uh, you know, it actually has a pretty amazing amount of space. When you sit in it, you know, you're not super close to your neighbor. It's not smart car-ish. Um, it, uh, it is, you know, elbow room. There's plenty of space inside. And in the rear, you fold the seats forward, and you actually have seven feet from uh, the tail storage all the way to the back of the seat. So you can put in, you know, an eight-foot surfboard. You can put in all your snowboard gear. Uh, you can actually sleep two people and a dog. Yeah, I was gonna say if, you, if you're a taller individual, even you could you could sleep in this car comfortably. Yep. Well, That's even crazy. more comfortably with the tent. Uh, so there's a tent yeah. feature that zips around the top when you open up the the back. So you have lots of headroom in there. It's it's quite nice. So you uh, yeah. drive to your camping destination 300 miles away. You camp for four days. You leave with more charge than you had when you got there. You were able to charge your laptop and your film gear, and uh, you know cook some breakfast in the morning in your conduction cooktop. And then you just pack what? it up and go home, you know? It's, uh, there's a conduction cooktop? No, there's just a big one. Oh, oh, oh. There's I was going to say, okay, yeah. Yeah, that would, that would just be... He lost him for a second. I was saying, you know, this thing, this this vehicle is, you know, under $30,000, and it's it's almost like a home as well. You, you can't be stranded in it. You can live wherever. I mean, Grayson and I, we, we bought a Mercedes Sprinter um, a little bit over a year ago, and we converted it into a tiny home. Oh, nice. And just driving that thing across country, you know, it was so spacious and... Uh, and built for it, but it still was such a struggle. Yeah, we. Uh, I mean, you know, stopping for gas, obviously, that's no brainer. But like, the, I think the the hardest part about camping in it was we didn't have we didn't have a heater uh, built into it, and we we couldn't run the heat overnight because God forbid there's a you know there's a leak carbon monoxide you know the, the exhaust. So we ended up in Keystone, Colorado. We we left from Los Angeles, ended up in Keystone, Colorado, and we were just, we decided this is a good place to sleep. So we pulled into a lodge parking lot. And I woke up an hour and a half later with my face <laughs> rock solid. I'm freezing. The interior of the vehicle was nine degrees Celsius. My face was frozen off. Yeah. Um, you know, but had it been an Eptera, an electric vehicle, you can keep the heat on, right? Yep. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you're, it's strand, you can't get stranded in it. You can't freeze in it. That's yeah, amazing. It's, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. The, yeah. the tent thing sounds like something we got to definitely give a shot. And then, and then one more feature I want to go over. So I saw that you guys have a, a feature... On one of your models, it accommodates for for dogs, and mm -hmm. that interested me. We just got a puppy. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. we uh, we have a little uh, retaining uh, net wall that goes up, and a little uh, set of stairs so the uh, so the the dog can get in the back. A uh, little pad to go over the back, but uh, but yeah, we yes. have a lot of people that are you know pet fans. I've got a dog. It's, any uh, yeah. creature with legs, I suppose. Any creature with legs, yeah. yeah. Any creature with legs. Your, uh, I, your kimono dragon, your yeah. uh, llama, maybe. You know, lots, lots of. Mm -hmm. lots of you have a ferret. <laughs> it might, although a ferret might be able to slither through the net. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you're not. You're no, not but that, a ferret. That's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. I definitely have to go on a camping trip with my puppy for yeah. sure. 
Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, um, you know, what we really see the Aptera as kind of a platform that gives you freedom that a lot of other vehicles don't give you. Uh, the freedom to not have to plug in because the sun's taking care of that charge. Uh, the freedom to, you know, go to places you maybe normally wouldn't go because you have the range to go there. You don't have to worry about finding a plug when you're there because the solar's gonna charge your vehicle when you're there. So, you know, we, we think that the freedom aspect of the Aptera and what it enables is a really, really interesting component for the people that have kind of an adventurous streak in them, um, for even, sure. Even for non-adventurous people, but like you said yourself, that uh, you know you had the anxiety about running out of charge. Um, you know, the idea that other electric vehicles, you know, you're tethered somehow, uh, you're restrained somehow with lots of other electric vehicles. And so we wanted to focus on how do we give people freedom? How do we not do what every other EV manufacturer is doing and instead give people something even more, give them freedom, freedom to, like you just said so eloquently, drive when you want to go, go where you want to go, not have to plug it in, not be tethered. You've, uh, you've probably been at uh, the supercharging station sometimes too with your Tesla. Um, it at its supercharging station like that, we could charge 200 miles in 10 minutes. So, you know, it's uh, super fast charging you know, not, not constricting as you know, some other vehicles maybe. I know I've spent a lot of time at superchargers, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, does the It's great does when the you Tesla can, uh, you know, play games and watch videos on your thing, but you're yeah. much better to get on with life. Yeah, you definitely want to get on the definitely, road. Definitely, yeah. So does the Tesla charger, does it, is it adaptable? Does it go into the to the Aptera? Yeah, the the, uh, the the Tesla charge. They have destination chargers and a supercharger network. It's it's a whole thing that's proprietary to Tesla. Uh, we okay. we hope that we can uh, you know form a partnership along the way that uh, that maybe uh, benefits uh, both. Uh, but you know it's. Um, um, there's lots of kind of charging standards out there, and the Aptera works with all of them. Uh, J1772, okay. uh, Chatham OCSS, uh, all those. Um, you know, you just need little plug adapters on the end of your plug. Uh, yeah, cool. Okay, stuff. we're used to those with you know the way Apple keeps upgrading their stuff. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I what you guys said about the freedom thing—that's really awesome, and it's it's really awesome that you're giving people you know the opportunity to have this adventurous freedom for under thirty thousand dollars as well. Um, that's something that I feel like is very discouraging when, you know, trying to be environmentally friendly and purchasing an electric vehicle, they're all, you know, oftentimes at a price range. Um, but for you guys making it more of a, an everyday driver for as many people as possible, um, I, I truly believe that's, you know, that's what's, that's what the planet needs. Well, that's the key. I mean, that's the key to making them realistic, isn't it? I mean, it, that's it exactly. If, if it's so expensive that it needs like government programs to make people buy it, then it's not really sustainable. It's artificial. It's enforced by tyranny or artificial means. If it's something that you can afford and something you desire, and we're making vehicles like that, then we won't have any problem getting many, you know, millions of people in electric vehicles. And so the other part of freedom that we didn't talk about is its affordability. And that is because of the efficiency. So the efficiency is really the tool that we use to deliver freedom, affordability, range, autonomy, all that stuff. Yeah, most people don't realize that the most expensive part of your electric vehicle is the battery. So if you can make your vehicle really efficient and use less battery, you're gonna have a cheaper vehicle. So that's just what we do. You know, We use four times less energy than the average EV. So we have a battery that's a quarter of the size of the typical EV. So you know, instead of a $20,000 battery pack, we have a $5,000 battery pack. And that trickles down to the cost of the vehicle. You know, you got a $5,000 battery pack, you wrap a really nice $10,000 vehicle around it, and 
there you go. You got a cost of $15,000. You can make money by selling that for under 30. Um, you know, the equation gets a lot tougher when you have to have a 200 kilowatt hour battery pack to run something like an EV pickup truck. Um, you know, that's a lot of batteries. Those batteries are really expensive. Oh, now the battery pack costs $60,000 and we spent $30,000 on the pickup truck. Now we got to sell it for $150,000, $170,000 to make any money. Um, it gets, it prices people out and we don't think that that's what is going to make the world a more efficient and better place over time. We think it's people that can buy vehicles for less than the average cost. The average cost is $41,000 for a vehicle in North America now. So, you know, we're, our base vehicle is 25.9. So a little over $25,000 and you can be in an Aptera and charging from the sun and, you know, picking your kids up from school and solar electric vehicle goodness and, you know, doing your part. That's, That's really awesome. And, and I just want to let you know, I'm not, I'm not texting here. We actually have a PowerPoint uh, that we've made about you guys. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> so I'm just referring to that really quickly because I want to get into your backgrounds in efficiency um, and, and environmentally friendly, I guess, practices and, and innovations. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Chris, you were the former CEO of Flux Power and founder, mm -hmm. um, correct, uh, which was an advanced lithium battery technology company that reduced carbon emissions in industrial spaces by over 1,000 tons per year, which is, to me, it sounds like an amazing statistic, but <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, what exactly is a CO2 emission and what does it do um, to the environment, to the environment, because a lot of people, you know, you hear about CO2 emissions and stuff, but you're like, what? I think it's to me a question that I had, it's something that we can't see, so I feel like it's, uh, you know, people are, you know, somewhat desensitized to, to the concept. So what exactly uh, do CO2 emissions do to the planet? Yeah, you know, I was doing the, uh, the boat stuff, and then the boat stuff evolved to the battery stuff, and, um, you know, the, the more that we can shift away from fossil fuels and burning things, the less CO2 emissions we put in the air, and it really is, you know, devolved into that. Uh, when you're processing things, or you're burning things, or you're changing things from, from one state to another, um, you know, through burning them, you end up releasing a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, and it has disastrous effects that trickle down to, you know, everything that we do in life, from uh, the weather, the storm patterns, to what we eat, uh, you know, everything in the carbon cycle, um, you know, has a cost. So reducing our carbon emissions uh, is a great start uh, to making for a better future for all of us. And, you know, burning gas, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, the sad part about burning gas is that you only get 25, 27% of the energy out of the fuel that you burn. So to us, it just seems terribly inefficient. Like, shit, you want to get all the energy out of that gas. Like, if you're going to burn it, you know, um, at least get something for it. So it's a shame to do something so inefficiently and then have a carbon byproduct uh, and noxious emissions uh, that are just devastating to the environment and, you know, our, our, our global home, right? You know, we want to keep this safe for our kids and grandkids and, you know, generations to come. So, um, you know. Basically, I mean, the carbon that we're burning now is sequestered 
out of the environment, you know, for tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions. And now we're releasing it all back out into the environment by burning fuels you know, much, much quicker than it was taken out. And so, you know, maybe in thousands of years it would equalize, but in the meantime, it might make the earth really, really, really hot. And so that's why scientists around the globe are concerned about uh, CO2 and its ability to increase the, the amount of heat that's absorbed in the upper atmosphere. So if we can just restrict what we release, then we at least stand a chance of not screwing up that big mechanism. You know, fuel, burning fuel is the easiest kind of leap, I think, for people to make to CO2 emissions because they're like, oh, I see smoke. I see smoke from you burning. You know, it comes out of your tailpipe, so that uh, turns into CO2. But it really is a trickle down for everything that you use because, you know, everything has a manufacturing cost, you know, from the threads you wear to the food you eat to, you know, everything was processed and it took energy to do that. And that energy uh, typically turns into carbon uh, and emissions somewhere. So uh, the Aptera, you know, uses a quarter of the battery pack that other electric vehicles would use. That means that, you know, we can build four vehicles with the same amount of materials it would take to build one other electric vehicle. So when you're thinking about, you know, the input cost of the things that you use in life, you know, try to pick things that are either reused or recycled or use drastically less content than other things out there. That's, that's really the way to help the planet. And yeah, yeah it's, it's all down to the products we buy. And that's something that I kind of realized in the last year of my life and have made a conscientious effort to, um, you know, just, you know, be, be more careful about what I'm, what I'm purchasing. Um, and that's why I decided to buy an electric car and um, it just makes me more excited to finally be able to drive an Aptera. It's not easy. You know, the information is not easily attained out there. And there's lots of, you know, counter, um, you know, information that isn't clear and isn't easy yeah. to follow. But, you know, I would say just that the easiest steps to take are, are reuse, recycle and try to buy things that have, uh, you know, the least amount of impact uh, with the material they, they bring together to I, make that product. I think more and more people are doing like you're doing, though. They're, they, uh, they shop their values. They align with, uh, they spend their money on things and organizations and companies that are at least uh, maybe aligned with their values or at least not opposite of their values. And so yes. yeah. I think that's more common now. Definitely. And as I've gotten into like, you know, more environmental studies and just things that I'm reading and, and uh, you know, researching companies like, like yours and uh, we've also gone vegan and, and, you know, learned about all the environmental benefits that that diet brings. Um, I, I've I've kind of been scared about some of the information I've read about you know what's going on in in, in the world and, and how it's polluting our environment and, and could potentially ruin our earth and our, our ocean is it you know a great stake too, so I you know I'm I'm 21 years old and I'm I'm you know I'm 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 a ways away from from having a family and starting a family but it's something that I definitely have plans of doing you know I would love to bring kids into this world but I can't help but kind of be a little bit nervous about that you know what what does their future hold and what what shape is this planet that we live on now going to be in if we keep treating it this way you know for my kid when he's my age or uh or she's my age um so i'm a little nervous and i, I was wondering is, is there anything that made you nervous was there some information that you read that that stands out that you realize i want to do something to to better this planet and and conserve energy like what's it what you're doing with that tara yeah when uh decided to start the company, I think, I mean, I'm an electrical engineer by training. And so when we, uh, electrical engineers, you design a circuit, a, some, any kind of circuit that's a power circuit, let's say, uh, one of the first things you do is you 
you're either given an efficiency or you try and make it as efficient as possible. It's real simple. If, if you can use one transistor instead of two, uh, if you can use one watt instead of five watts, you know, you, you want to do that because this is better for the product. Less materials, less cost, less weight. And so I, my mind has always worked that way. When, when I looked at converting an electric car before we started at Terra, I was, I was puzzled why everyone that had converted one only got 20 or 30 miles range. This was maybe early 2000s. Uh, and so I did some digging and found out it's really simple. It's weight is a big one, but it's mostly drag at high speeds. And that all of the, all of the energy, half of the energy, I, sh I should say, at high speeds is used just to push the air out of the way. And so from an from, from electrical engineer's perspective, my mind, I reason that it's like, Modern cars are more closely designed to furniture than, than what they should be designed. They're designed as a styling exercise, not as what it needs to be, like an airplane would be. And that was sort of the light switch that went on me and said, look, if you wanted to make electric vehicles viable uh, and most efficient as possible, you really have to rethink what the shape is. And the shape should be dictated by low drag. It should not be dictated by styling. And so... That was the, I think, the shift in understanding of efficiency that really, that became the start of the company is to say, look, we have to, we have to build a fleet of vehicles all around the premise of the, the lowest drag shape possible, rather than some block that's a styling exercise that wastes half of its energy to push the air out of the way. Yeah. And, and so I'm also, I'm also wondering because I, like, I want to get into even maybe before you had thoughts of, of of like what Aptera could be in in electrical in electric vehicles. Um, Steve, you also founded Fam Grow. Is that, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Which is a sustainable food growing. I, I, I want to get into that because that's fascinating to me as well. Yeah, and let's start. Yeah, it's um, from what we've read. It's I believe multi level indoor gardening essentially, um, and and the growth of leafy greens. Uh, for food without using soil um, and 90% and less water than is normally used. That's right. Um, it, it got started, uh, again, from a hobby. I mean, I love food. I love cooking food, talking about food, eating food, growing it, etc. Likewise. Um, and when I travel around the world, even if I'm using like Google Translate or something, I'll just start a conversation with the taxi driver or whatever about food because you can talk about it. You can talk about politics, religion, or other stuff. But you can always talk to people about food, especially me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was um, growing kale in my garden, and uh, my daughter loved to play in the garden, hide-and-seek. At the time, she was two. And uh, at the same time, I couldn't eat the kale because there were too many aphids and other things on it. And um, I wouldn't use pesticide because she played in it. And so I'm like, well, how am I going to grow this and keep the bugs off without using pesticide? Um, so I read about hydroponics. I built a little setup. And, you know, most people at the time were growing pot with hydroponics. I was growing lettuce and kale. And what, what exactly are hydroponics? In, in my garage. And, uh, <laughs> and the light went on uh, because of my background in, in engineering with Illumina and, and making DNA and thinking about scale and orders of magnitude, reduction in materials and things like that. And the, the light went on to say, well, okay, well, how do I – how do I take this plant and spread it in X and Y and Z and make it as dense and use the least amount of light and least amount of water? And I, I wrote a business plan and, and got it funded and built a demonstrator and 
Um, I think I think we raised about seven or eight million dollars at the time. We had a farm, a functioning farm in uh, Carlsbad, and we sold to Whole Foods and uh, a couple of other local wholesalers. Uh, but it, it was a very capital intensive uh, industry. And as you see, there's been some big players in it recently. Um, yeah. And it's just difficult industry because you're still competing with low cost produce grown just across the border that's just as good. So um, we ended up uh, moving to Abu Dhabi kind of as a separate thing, uh, but to work for the royal family doing this ag tech deal flow, managing their ag tech investment fund. and. Um, built all kinds of farms uh, over there to really show how it would work in that region. And, and we, dem we developed revenue streams in Singapore, export revenue streams, Hong Kong. We were able to grow produce there and ship it all over the world. Um, I think agriculture is, is such a deep, you know, it's not my industry, right? I'm an electrical engineer, but I, I learned a lot about it in the short time I was in it. And it's a problem with, with lots of problems. It's a field, I should say, with lots of problems, but lots of opportunities. Um, lots of challenges and the solutions are not as straightforward as they would appear because there's, there's all these other layers to the agriculture business, the distributors and relationships and things like that. So um, it's not as straightforward as one would think to try and make a big impact. Yeah. It's amazing what you could grow with hydroponics, you know, with uh, less than a percent of the same amount of water and, you know, beautiful leafy greens and stuff that my kids love to eat and, um, you know, He's humble, but you know he built the largest advanced hydroponics farm in the world, uh, and the technology that was enabled by that, um, you know, is technology uh, some that we're using uh, for Upterra today. But funny story, I mean, we did end up uh, when we became USDA organic certified in the Middle East. We actually ended up going back full circle to soil, uh, but in little soil cups, uh, and you know the plant growing in there, and that's because yeah. to get that. Um, the uh, organic microbial breakdown of the nutrients that's required for the organic certification can't be done in an inert media, it has to be done in soil. So we were actually importing, uh, and then later mixing, importing soil from U.S. so we'd get these big cargo planes. I'm sure it was a terrible carbon footprint uh, to import soil and fertilizer from the U.S. <laughs> into the Middle East, but it was enough to demonstrate it and get it started. But um, yeah, the, the plants actually benefit a lot from uh, from soil. There's all kinds of mechanisms that are occurring uh, with uh, mycorrhizae and other fungi that I, I don't think scientists even fully understand yet. So it's, there's a lot more going on in soil than people give it credit for. Good stuff. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Cause we're plant-based and I, and I'm, you know, I'm, I, I don't know enough about soil and stuff either. And that's where I'm getting all my foods. From. I do know that leafy greens are the most nutrient dense foods that you can offer your body. So they, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, they are. And uh, what, what I found about, just the produce space and growing like these large scale. I mean, we're harvesting, you know, a thousand pounds of basil, a thousand pounds of kale a day. Um, and this stuff has a shelf life of hours, you know, not months or weeks. And so mm -hmm. the, all, all the chain, the supply chain has to be perfect. All the cold chain, you know, getting a clean package, everything to the customer, and then the customer has to buy it. But um, what I found is that in most, we live in a bubble here, you know, in, in the U.S. and North America. But you go outside of the world, or outside of that bubble, and most people think, like, lettuce and leafy greens, like, those are luxuries. Like, I, you know, they want potatoes, they want peppers, they want rice, they want uh, lots and lots of calories. And so the places where it's, there's malnourishment, not enough calories, 
the governments and the populations are really, they're not looking for leafy greens. Those are, or microgreens, you know, they're looking for different solutions. And so I viewed it, I viewed the indoor farming as, as a, a sustainable way to kind of decorate our plate, but I don't think we're saving lives with lettuce. You know, we're not, we're not feeding people that are hungry. We're giving them good, nutritious food, of course, but they do need other things in their diet that, that uh, other than what vertical farming can, I think, can produce. Diet's so, yeah. a, big, uh, a big impactor for sure. Uh, uh, produce affordably. I mean, I've grown everything. Potatoes, strawberries, blueberries, you know, all of that indoor and controlled. And you can do it, but it's not necessarily profitable. And at the end of the day, it has to be profitable. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. <laughs> so it seems like, I mean, every, everything that you guys, you guys have done as far as companies that, that I've read about have been very environmentally conscious, uh, conscientious. And what, what kind of sparked that? Like, what made you guys fall in love with, you know, the, the idea of uh, you know, preserving the, this planet and... and like yeah, what, I, what opened your eyes to the, to, to the importance of doing that? Because I think um, it's only like now that, that a lot of you know, headlines are coming out about the things that were the toxic things that you know, the human race is doing to, to the planet that we live on. And you know, documentaries like Game Changers and now Sea Spears here coming out. And people are now like being served this information for the first time you know, because of private investigations that have been going on around the globe and now being broadcasted to them we're finally able to see like how wrong it is that we're treating this planet. But you guys seem like you've, you've kind of been hip to that for a long time now. And uh, like what sparked that? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. So I grew up in, in nature and around the mountains and rivers and streams. Uh, when I went to college, I was an environmental engineering major to start. Um, I, I spent my summers raft guiding in, in West Virginia and, you know, camping out in the woods and just spending, you know, quality time with nature. Um, yeah. you know, so when, uh, when I got, you know, to the advanced portions of my career, I always just, you know, look back on that, you know, when I, when I want to start building something, how can I do it in the best manner for the planet possible? And I think people, you know, spend time with mother earth and you'll, uh, you'll learn to appreciate, uh, all the goodness that she provides. Right. Um, you know, with, uh, I was a tinkerer when I was a kid. Uh, so I think now that love for the environment and the early time that I spent has transformed into, um, well, how do we use engineering to create smart solutions that benefit the planet? And it goes back to like the equation with burning fuel. We only get 25% out of the gas we burn. The stat is mind-blowing to a lot of people. Like, hold on, I put gas in my tank, it takes me so far, you're telling me what happens to the rest of the energy? Well, it's all heat and blown out the tailpipe. Um, you know, anybody seeing a racing exhaust glowing red hot, all that heat comes from somewhere. Uh, it comes from that fuel. It's not going to propel your wheels. Uh, it's, it's being blown out of your engine. So, um, you know, smart engineering solutions to make the world a better place is what Steve and I are all about. Um, you know, burning gas, it's only getting you 25% of the energy. Okay, let's use electrons. Let's use an electric motor. Um, you know, a vehicle's wasting 60% of its fuel, just pushing air out of the way. Let's make the damn thing aerodynamic. Um, you know, same thing with light weighting and low rolling resistance. And it's a whole, a whole trickle down. I think I've just, I've been terribly fortunate to, uh, to be around smart people and do things like with my boat company, um, you know, using environmentally responsible composite methods to build wakeboard boats that are cool and fun. And, you know, now with Aptera building environmentally responsible, uh, transportation, uh, that, you know, people can afford and use on a daily basis. 
when when creating a company is it um is it less cost effective because i i kind of like wonder what what deters companies from being environmentally conscious and and is it less cost effective to use materials that are better for the planet is that why people resort to just well i can uh i think it's primarily cost uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, just when we ran the farm uh, in Carlsbad, the indoor vertical farm, we, um, uh, we had a very high cost model, uh, barely profitable, but uh, we also made the commitment to offer our employees health care and uh, pay for those premiums. I think it was before Obamacare or right before it was rolled out. And so that was a big cost uh, for us, of course, but we felt it was necessary to get the kind of talent that we needed and to you know be equitable um, but one of our biggest competitors it was also local uh, we had later discovered that uh, was how else can i say they were being very exploitive with their labor approach uh, and and uh, you know they weren't paying workers comp uh, they weren't paying all the insurance costs that we were and so they were able to sell lettuce at a lower price than us for example um, and so it's unfortunate, but that's just the way the world works. I think to answer your question, it's because of costs it's, or, or greed. And so people say, look, I can I not do this. I can, maybe some companies think they can get out of paying workers' comp insurance and save money, but really it's the worker that gets screwed if something happens, you know? Uh, so I think that happens all the time. And it's unfortunate, but that's, I would say it's money and greed. We have an odd corporate culture in America too, you know, the, the main driver for a corporation is profits and you have a fiduciary responsibility to the company to create shareholder value. I mean, um, you know, lots of times doing the right thing for the planet or people does not hit your bottom line positively, um, you know, and people get sued, uh, you know, at big companies for not creating shareholder value. Um, so when, when you have just that sole focus on the dollars and cents, um, you choose, you know, the path of least resistance and what's cheapest. And oftentimes, many times, that's not the most env environmentally friendly option. I, I think Russell Brand is talking about this very uh, subject. Like, uh, yeah, you have the fiduciary to the shareholders, but what about to like the neighborhood? What about, you know, to the kids that have to breathe the air on the playground? Like there's these other costs that aren't really internalized in the typical business model that we, you know, by our own nature, we are trying to be mindful of them, but we're not compelled to. I think uh, Aptera set up differently in that, you know, Steve and I um, started this company in a different way so we could retain control and control of how the companies run. And I think we will always choose, you know, the most efficient and environmentally friendly option uh, because that's what we're driven by. Um, you know, unlike other companies that may be formed 20 years ago, um, just the climate for the formation of those companies and how they're controlled by the shareholders and, you know, maybe a lot of influence comes from the board of directors uh, and not the founders. Uh, I think it'll make a big difference for us in the way we're able to run the company and be environmentally responsible responsible and respect the people that work for the company and our community and all, all those things. So I hope that that trend is followed by all the great new tech startups. Um, you know, there's a dozen really cool electric vehicle companies that are coming together right now. You know, in 10 years, you know, most of the vehicles hopefully you see driving around Southern California are electric. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a brave new world and we're happy to, you know, one of the other uh, environmental things that we do here is we don't have, we made a decision, we don't want any disposable plates or cups or plasticware. And so we just have all real stuff, but then we have 
bins of washing, rinsing, and then sterilizing, and a video on how to do it. So we teach people when they come here, like, okay, you use a dish, here's how you wash it, rinse it, sterilize it, put it in the bin, air dry, uh, not running the dishwasher. So we want to try and live it, even as something as simple as a break room, and how we don't have paper plates and stuff like that. A lot of companies, they half the trash they throw out every day is just disposable products. So we are looking at ways to try and minimize that even in the break room. Yeah, I mean, from consumer's perspective, we pre-ordered your, your vehicle. I, I really appreciate um, what you guys are doing and the example you're setting for all these new tech startups and uh, electric vehicle companies um, and just prioritizing doing the right thing over, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 uh, the monetary drive. Um, it's really, really admirable. Thanks, Thank thanks. Yeah. Well, we hope to uh, deliver your vehicle very soon. What, uh, what color and package did you get? I believe I got matte black. Nice, um, nice. What what is the is does the vehicle model have a name yet? I, I know there's a Soul. I read that. Yeah, the color packages are named. So we have okay. uh, Soul, Noir, and Luna. Soul okay. is an off white. I think uh, I have Noir. Luna is kind of a silver, space silver, uh, and Noir is the one behind us. It's the flat black. Um, you can also get special colors. So we let people order. Um, I don't know if you see, but from the belt line down. Uh, is a, is a distinct color, so you can get that in any color you want. Uh, so it's a vinyl wrap below that line, so you can get oh, it in wow. flat black, flat red, blue, you know what, gold, whatever color you want, um, and we'll apply it, you know, at the factory. Um, That's you know, that does come at a little extra cost, but if you want to be more unique in your spaceship, then you can get special <laughs> yeah. colors on the bottom. It's it's so crazy how it's legitimately a spaceship. Um, I can assume <laughs> well, that... Well, it's not legitimately because no, but it, no, it's here it, on Earth. Well, it just looks like a spaceship. It, t- it yeah. looks like it's hovering. No, it's futuristic. It's, it's so it's, futuristic. I, I can just imagine how many times... Um, I, I feel like people would have told you no in, in the process of creating something like this. Very, like, very much so. We have, yeah. Yeah, we have some uh, frame letters from different VCs <laughs> who... Um, you know, got the ultimate. You know, you get rejection letters, right? You got to kind of uh, keep them just to remind yourself that uh, you're not the crazy one. You know, that yeah. you're you're the one that's rational. It's just a lot of other people are bitten by a sheep mentality, and they can't understand yeah. something that looks different. They can't process it. They they don't want to spend the mental effort to step out of their box and look at a different paradigm. And that's right. what we made our careers doing. We've heard so many times, you know, how many people are actually going to buy this egg-shaped thing? Um, mm-hmm. We have over nine thousand orders now. Wow. Yeah, three thousand a month. That's how many people, Chris? Three thousand. <laughs> exactly. You know, now I think we have some validity to our business model because it's like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, we have nine thousand people out there that have put down an order for these. You know, a hundred dollars to reserve their place in line for an Eptera. And, you know, that's helped with our conversation with vendors and investment partners and, you know, on down the road. We don't we don't have to justify the market. The market is clearly there because people are ordering the Eptera and they're waiting in line. So hopefully in the next, you know, 18 months, we'll start to delivering, you know, these vehicles all around the world. So. And they're talking so this about is, it like you guys. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. It's great that you saw our video and, you know, reached out. I'm, 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 so, happy. I'm, so, I'm so happy we did. Th- these orders, 9,000 orders, that's the result of not taking no for an answer when, when creating this, this vehicle. And I, I just want to like, what, what, at what times did it get difficult receiving all those no's? Like what, what time was, was it difficult to push through? Like just from the adversity of, of like, I guess, you know, the, the mental state that you could have been in as, you know, the CEOs of this company, like 
taking a bunch I, of no's and I can imagine it's discouraging to have people not believe in the idea. Well, there's the, uh, the big no's that are from investors or potential partners, right? Those are the Department of Energy, right? Those are big no's. Mm. And Chris and I, you know, is both co-CEO here and in other leadership positions. When you're trying to step out of the out of the box into a new paradigm, what you have are the no's all the little no's from every team member, you know, well, we can't, we've always done it this way, or that's not going to work, or, or that or that. And so it starts out fundamentally building the company with people who have the right mindset, who have a high emotional intelligence, who are able to um, entertain an opinion, even though they don't agree with it, without emotionally reacting, who are able to accept a better opinion without emotionally reacting. And... And then you, you can argue and have a frank discourse and get the right answer. But instead of a sea of no's, we, we are actively encouraging a, an environment of, of open and frank dialogue and helping the employees learn uh, emotional intelligence. I think a, I think a lot of people and um, you know, people that we met in the VC community and investors and people that have given us no's um, have no as a gut reaction to something that's different but as they've learned more about Aptera, I mean, we have people uh, that contacting us from years ago and, you know, I, I didn't like Aptera the first time I saw it, but now I love it. You know, my, <laughs> my daughter loves it. My wife loves it. And it was like, their mind was set. They saw this weird spaceship thing. They were like, nobody's going to drive a three-wheeled thing that looks like a spaceship. It's not going to happen. And there's people that are like that. And I think, you know, because uh, our design is so polarizing, um, you know, that's just going to be the way for a lot of people. But I think as people learn about it, like a lot of things in life, they start to come around. They go, oh, well, 60% of my fuel is going to just pushing air out of the way in my car now. Okay, I get aerodynamics. Okay, I, I get it. Electric powertrain. Okay, well, Tesla did it. You know, that seems like it's working. Okay, shit. Like yeah, that's what that the future should look like. Yeah. 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 Surely. Yeah. And so when was the first time that, you know, the world saw Aptera? I read something about... Um, about 10 years ago, I believe it was, you originally tried to start the company up and then lost funding. Um, can you speak about what happened with that? Yeah, we had a, a great effort and a great team about a decade ago. Steve's original idea was uh, was put forth and we you know, determined that it was possible. Uh, the hard part was, you know, back in the early days of electric vehicles before Tesla even had their Roadster, um, there was just, there was no supply chain. Everything was invented. They didn't even have a plug standard. So, you know, the J1772 plug that you plug in the car to charge with didn't exist. So we're just using extension cords and stuff. So, you know, now, 10 years later, um, the market is, you know, just so much better positioned for us. People aren't as scared about electric vehicles. 10 years ago, people would ask us questions like, well, what happens when it rains? Are you going to get electrocuted? Well, now that question seems kind of silly because, you know, Tesla's been around for a while and, hey, it's just an electric car. It just runs on electricity instead of gasoline. Um, but, you know, we, uh, we, we had a, a brilliant start and we, um, you know, developed an amazing vehicle 10 years ago, uh, but I think ambitions were high that, you know, we could build 500,000 of these things a year. And then to do that, we needed a Department of Energy loan, um, you know, that was to the tune of 600 million bucks, and that's just a lot of money. And Steve and I didn't have kind of the control position we have at the company now, so the board of directors wanted to go with a different management uh, team to execute on that really big plan. And Steve, and I, I went off to start my lithium battery company, um, 
and Steve went off to build the world's largest advanced hydroponics farm. So, you know, we both separated from the company and then unfortunately the company just didn't get the money to make it through to production. So they folded shop, they liquidated in 2011 and, you know, a blessing for us because, uh, you know, almost a decade later, we were able to come back and say, okay, we can reacquire the company. We can reform Aptera. We think this is a much better time for electric vehicles because the supply chain's there. People know electric vehicles now. Um, you know, it seems like funding, you know, is available for electric vehicles now where it wasn't a decade ago. So, you know, let's build a vehicle that, you know, has a thousand miles range and can solar charge itself every day. And, you know, looks like a spaceship. <laughs> it, I mean, it's not a... Um it's uh, the first time around, obviously, is very different for both of us, you know, than, than now. But um, I think at its core, we tried to push everything too quickly. And, and we brought in a management team that we thought would be the best. And, and uh, I think we all worked towards that goal. But I think um, the visions were incompatible. The skill sets were incompatible. And uh, maybe it could have worked, but I think it's a blessing now because... It's not just a good time. I think right now is the absolute best time ever to start an electric vehicle company because just what Chris was saying, right? There, if you go back and look 10 years ago, all of the reports that these you know expensive MBAs from um, companies uh, like McKinsey or, or Jefferies or places like that that would write these business analysis reports, none of them expected hybrid and electric vehicle sales to be what they are today. Like they all missed that shot by a, by a mile. So they're, they're more popular than we ever imagined. The popularity is increasing faster than we anticipated. Everybody wants electric vehicle. Um, it's just the best time to do it. And we're, yeah. we're, we're trained, we got the battle scars. <laughs> For sure. That's, uh, it's, it's crazy that you had this idea 10 years ago. I'm, I'm remembering being on a walk with my my friend, and I think this is this is probably 2008, so a little bit more than 10 years ago. But I was in whatever second or third grade, and I was walking with my friend and and his mom, and we were all having a conversation. And a car drove by, and uh, she was like, "I think that when you guys are, are old enough to drive, there will be cars that are that are run on electricity and and can drive themselves." And I was like, "That sounds like crazy. Like, there's no way that." that's what the future holds and and here we are and it and it's true and you guys are the ones doing it so uh it's yeah it's yeah that was a crazy memory that i said congratulations for you know pushing through uh what you did to get to this point and congratulations on the success of your new vehicle i'm very excited to get in one and uh go on a camping trip with my puppy yeah <laughs> can't wait to uh can't wait to deliver it and uh you know come down to san diego sometime and see it for yourself yeah excited to give it to you we'd love to well, thank you guys very much. Hey, thank really appreciative time, of everything you're doing for, for this world and this planet. Thank you. Um, thank you, thank you for your time. Much.